Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to Unboxy World. Could we apply modern UX design principles to actually design a better future? That is the topic for today. And on the show, we have Stephen Bow, who is a designer, writer, and educator who decided to, after over 30 years in UX design, to discontinue that path to instead work on projects that are not only good for humanity, but also all life forms. And in the episode today, he shares his learnings from over 30 years in design and elaborate on how that could instead be applied to rethinking and redesigning our societies and to create a better future. So in the episode today, you will learn what social architecture is, the difference between human-centered design and life-centered design, how we could apply design then to actually redesign our societies, and what then would a more sustainable KPI be to optimize our societies for. So I'm looking forward to get started today. So let's dig in. So hello, Stephen Bao. Uh, welcome to Unbox Your World. <laughs> Hi, Maria. Thank you for inviting me to uh, have this conversation. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that we were able to meet in uh, in the Rebuild Conference, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it it turned out to be this really serendipitous uh, meeting, and mm-hmm. and that seems to be what I've been finding over the past year is. Um, growing a lot of interesting connections and relationships. I I agree. That's um that it tends to be like that how it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I mean you have um a long career in uh, UX design. I mean you've been working with for 20 years. Um and now 30 years actually. Oh, sorry, yeah. 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I started in design in in 1988. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's been a while. So, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's back in the days, I assume, when nobody even knew what UX design was. It wasn't really a thing back then, right? That's right. Yeah, we yeah. were being trained in doing everything mechanically, everything mm-hmm. by hand. And um, I got into the industry as a graphic mm-hmm. designer, a junior designer mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's always been a, an adaptation to the new technologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... So yeah, I mean, it's quite an extensive um, amount of experience, and now you decided to discontinue that path. Um, why is that? 
So the particular path that I was on mm-hmm. was um, working as a mentor for a platform called Design Lab. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a program called, or they still do, <laughs> um, called UX Academy. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the mode of using my experience as a, as a way to help onboard new designers into mm-hmm. the user experience design field. Um, so that seemed to be where I was finding value, but at, at the same time, I was um, exploring different avenues of creativity as a designer. Uh, so, in the, the beginning of 2020, just before the the pandemic, um, I was actually on Twitter just talking about um, the the truth and reconciliation process in Canada. And uh, there was someone on, on Twitter who was noticing what I was doing and and invited me to collaborate with her. So it was going to be um, a project looking at Holochain and, and um, she was inviting me to a conference in Seattle um, just to figure out how do we collaborate together. So adapting to new technologies and figuring out, okay, where can we take this? And through that, um, she was also involved with the Buckminster Fuller Institute um, that uh, right now is based out of San Francisco. And uh, they were in the midst of um, just putting out these new courses called TrimTab Space Camps um, trying to bring people into the idea of how do we deal with this climate emergency? Mm. And uh, it seems like a time that we need to think about different kinds of like moonshots, um, going back to that that metaphor that <clears throat> um, Kennedy was using with the, the space race, trying to get to the moon. Um, we're in a time of crisis where we're trying to figure out how do we best collaborate and then focus our time, energy, and resources on, on what really matters. And um, so they started something called the Design Science Studio. And this is looking back at what Buckminster Fuller was trying to do between 1965 and 1975. He created something called the Design Science Decade. And he was kind of shopping this idea around uh, in post-secondary institutions around the United States. Um, It was the idea that, well, we have all of this amazing technology available to us. And unfortunately, we're using it all for war games. So what if we shifted our attention to actually thinking about how do we solve the world's problems? So changing it into world games, where instead of creating more conflict, more problems, you're actually recognizing we have everything we need to uh, have a a high living standard for everyone in the world, but the resources are not um, equitably distributed. So how do we solve these problems? And I guess I have that same sort of feeling as a designer is, well, I'm stuck in these systems that I I don't really agree with socially, economically, politically. 
these are on a trajectory that are causing more harm than good in a lot of ways. So we can maybe look at, you know, the technologies that we created and go, they're actually really amazing. And we're, we're finding new ways of thinking about our place in the universe. But at the same time, um, the climate crisis is showing us that we don't really have a good understanding of how we integrate with the living systems of the planet. We're actually in the process of destroying them. Um, that means we we have to make some systemic changes about how we think about design and the influence of design as an industry um, on the world. We know that it has huge major impacts. Um, and and designers are an integral part of the the social, economic, and political structures that we've created. But when we look at those, we think that they can't be changed. We're, they're just given and we're just going to run with them. But they are actually recent inventions. And that actually means that we have the ability to redesign them. And as a UX designer, that's a really interesting way to think about, you know, if we're given a problem, uh, we are the the kinds of people who can take that problem and then turn them into really interesting solutions. But often we're given a frame, a design brief that says, well, you have to meet the, um, according to IDEO, for example, human-centered design is all about like, how do you create something that is um, desirable, feasible, and viable so that it meets a human need, it fits within the technological constraints, but it can also um, achieve um, a viable business model. So this has been the sweet spot of human-centered design. But of course, if you're thinking about human-centered design, it's it's anthropocentric. and And that is going to mean that, well, yeah, everything that we're creating serves human beings or maybe certain human beings at the top of the hierarchy. Um, but it's it's not serving the other living beings on the planet. It's not serving the planet itself as, as we might think of it as a self-regulating living system, um, according to the Gaia hypothesis. So... Me as a as a designer who's been in this industry for you know thirty two years or thirty three years, and then exploring well, where do we actually innovate now? How do we continue to evolve and adapt to our environment? Um, and I, I think that this is part of our evolution as human beings. We are our um, creative, collaborative learning community who are figuring out, you know, who are, who are we? What are we? What are we doing here? Where are we going with, with all of these technologies? Mm. Is it, you wrote about um, in an article about human-centered design versus life-centered design. Right. Um, so I assume so that it really about changing um, what you're optimizing for, I assume? Um, right. So, what 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 do you mean with life center design, and how could you go about to design something like that? 
Right. So I think a lot of what we're doing tends to be about, you know, what we're really good at focusing on something and then actually accomplishing it. And, and so as we realize that we're turning intention into reality, um, this is, uh, it's kind of like dropping um, a stone into uh, a pond and watching the, the ripples flow out from that. So um, this sort of brought me to this idea of, of how we're, if we're thinking about human-centered design, then that's, that's what the outputs were, are going to be. Uh, we'll end up creating something that serves um, the, the existing systems really well by just amplifying what we're already doing at a global scale through technology. But what we're finding is that when we do that, we can actually change the weather. <laughs> we, can, we can destroy entire ecosystems. And when we recognize that we have that immense power, but it seems like the, the technology has become kind of like a runaway train, or how do you stop that momentum? Well, I think you do that through consciousness and awareness of of what we're what we're doing, what our impact is on the world, and that's kind of where we are at the moment. We recognize the problem, but we don't know where to go from here. And so, if we change the frame of what we're looking at, from okay, humans are at the center of the universe. Oh, right. Well, that's actually wrong. Um, even the Earth is not the center of the solar system. It's a solar system because the sun is at the, the center, but the, the sun itself isn't even the, at the center. So thinking about centers, like we're in this process of decolonization, uh, decentralization, where we're recognizing, you know, we focus so much on the center that we forgot about what was on the edges. And, mm -hmm. and in UX design, there's even this idea of what are the edge cases? And we're debunking that idea by going, well, if you forget about the edge cases, you're creating a world that is by design, biased and inequitable. And, and so by building these systems that have this bias embedded in the technologies and scaling them to the size of the globe, you're creating huge unintended consequences that now you're going to have to figure out, well, how do we solve that? And usually, you know, people who are in the technology space are going, well, we solve problems by creating more technology to solve the, the problems that we already created with technology. And, and this is just kind of a silly way of thinking about um, how we work as designers is just like um, doing more of the same to try to solve the 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 same kind of problems that were created with that te this technology. And uh, I, I think Einstein's famous for saying Yeah, I was you know. just about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you repeat that to the listener? <laughs> oh, actually, you know, maybe I couldn't. Um, but it essentially um, comes down to, you know, using the same kinds of, of ideas to solve a problem 
that were the ones that created the problem is yeah, is the um, definition of insanity. <laughs> mm. So, um, I think what we're recognizing is that um, by centering so much of what we do as human beings on this instinct for survival and competition, um, we think that the world is based on this idea of entropy, that everything is breaking down and um, there are a limited amount of resources that we have to work with here. So it has to be about creating systems that perpetuate the survival of the fittest. But what we're learning now from our science and maybe even from, from our ancient wisdom, indigenous wisdom or ancient religious traditions is that that's not how we got here. We got here through caring and collaboration and working together to find a way to innovate new ways to adapt to the existing environment. Yeah. And when the, the environment is changing very rapidly because of our technologies, we feel like we have to increase the rate of technology to keep up with the rate of change. And this becomes a, an infinite growth cycle. And, and so the, the means become the ends. Um, the same way that we think of the money system, it's designed for perpetual growth. Capitalism cannot sustain itself unless it continues to grow. And if we look at that kind of thing in, in, the, in terms of uh, living systems, well, that's something you would call a cancer, <laughs> something that yeah. is eternally growing for the sake of, of reproducing itself rather than um, figuring out how to work in symbiosis with the living system to maintain the health of the whole. Instead, we're we're living for the health of humanity at the expense of everything else. So yeah. that that fundamentally changes the way we need to think about, you know, life-centered design actually has to think about how we fit into um, the living ecology, but also the self-regulating system of the planet. And and what does it mean that we have this living planet within? Uh, a universe that now we're starting to recognize there's almost a self-organization that is happening within that system that we we can't account for. We're like, where's that self-organization coming from? There's a there's a maybe a syntropy as the word that that maybe Buckminster Fuller would would use for where's where's the information coming from? Where's life coming from? Where are these adaptations um, coming from that create an equilibrium against the entropy that is happening in the, in the universe? So it's not all about entropy. It's actually about entropy and syntropy working together to create a kind of flow of energy um, through all the systems that has this ultimate coherence uh, in creating more and more complexity and diversity of of um, 
physics, chemistry, biology, living systems, there's an evolution to this that is that we are witnesses to and we are the products of. And if we don't recognize that sooner than later, if we think it's all about entropy, we're going to create entropy engines. And and we're actually going to be reversing the process of of evolution that has brought us to this place. And can you explain for the listeners what an, what entropy means? So entropy is, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, but hmm. um, entropy is is just this idea of um, things seem to be breaking down. Um, heat sort of dissipates, and what we should be expecting in the universe is this. Uh, like there was an initial explosion, we think, um, called the Big Bang that that brought everything into being, but then there's there is this increasing complexity. And what what we should expect is that everything should just kind of like if there's a big bang, well, everything fizzles out and eventually we end up with the heat death of the universe. Um it means heat is just gonna um, spread out and dissipate, and then everything comes back to uh, kind of uh, a state of of equilibrium, I guess, where you know um, everything just gets back to a, a, a kind of zero state. But what we're recognizing now is there's there's something else going on here. Like, wh- why is the in an explosion, we would think that there would be a deceleration after the initial acceleration of all this matter flowing out from a single point. But what we're finding is that the universe expansion is an acceleration, and we can't figure out why that's happening. Where, Where's the extra energy coming from for that to be able to happen? So yeah, I, I guess I, I would explain um, entropy similar to like a, an explosion of energy. You would expect that the the initial heat would be very intense, but over time that that heat would dissipate and be absorbed into the environment. Um, but it seems like that's not exactly what's happening. <laughs> so how do we explain that? It just brings us back to what does it mean to be human? We we are very limited creatures who yeah. <laughs> um, have only a faint idea of what's actually going on. So if we measure you know, how much we actually know compared to um, even what we can observe in the universe is maybe you know, two to 5% of the, the known universe and everything outside of that is (laughs) we'll call dark matter because we have no idea what it is and, and we have to give it a name. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to life centered design, then um, obviously we talked about, you know, capitalism, like GDP is obviously, a metric in society that is not sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. So how would we um, 
if you were then to apply these design principles and trying to start working towards a more life-centered design, mm. what would good what would be a good metric to work towards? Um, how does a yeah. a, a better future look like? Well, from a from a humanist yeah. perspective, mm -hmm. I would mm -hmm. say love needs to be the metric. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but how do you quantify that? Um, I just know from a personal mm -hmm. uh, experience of being human, what am I looking for in the world? How do I find meaning? And for me, it it keeps on coming back to like how do I manifest love in the universe? How do I you know, bring it down to just simple interactions in my relationships with my wife or my, my child or my grandchild and, and all these friends and, and colleagues um, who I am interdependent and interconnected with. And this to me is kind of like the idea of life is that, we think it's just this simple two-dimensional line graph of if we can measure profit over time and growth over time, then yeah. that's enough for us to to know that things are getting better. But life is way more complex than that two-dimensional frame that we put life into. And what if we were able to think in in three, four you know, multidimensional states of being that we're actually in, um, then we'd have to look at that idea of growth as a really primitive way of thinking about um, how we measure um, wellness and health and and social cohesion. Like there's there's all these factors that come into what does it mean to be happy or to enjoy life but also once we start thinking about the more than human world well there's now all these ecosystems and all the interactions that are at play um, the communication and the relationships within all these systems and in our science, we're being drawn back to indigenous ways of knowing, which kind of thought of everything as spiritual or as uh, interconnected in some way. And so everything maybe seems to have a life force, um, even mm -hmm. the in inanimate objects. And as I'm walking through a forest and I'm looking at a tree, well, now I'm starting to think in terms of science, but also in terms of like, how how did this get here? <laughs> what designed this? Because it's, it's uh, an amazing technology that surpasses anything that human beings could devise on their own. And I think that we're in this process of actually learning, you know, through, through our sciences, um, this becomes a big part of what we do as designers is is we're sense making. We are becoming empathic with the the people that we're serving in user experience mm -hmm. design. It, it's all about how do we start with the idea of what what do people need? 
then we grow from there through um, maybe we create a persona, maybe we create a user journey, trying to figure out what, what kinds of things does that person need to be able to make the right decisions um, and to be able to function within the, the systems that we've created. So we create these apps and, and, um, and websites and, and then social systems that, that serve those needs. But we've been primarily focused on that as a closed system, but it's not. It's interacting with all these other systems which create this whole level of complexity that's way beyond what we're usually capable of thinking of. But now we have technologies that um, help us to extend our senses beyond the, the six or however many senses we have. Typically in English, we, we talk about five senses, but we, we tend to forget about balance. And, um, and I think that's what I'm trying to bring to the way we think is this sense of balance to um, how we think of ourselves inside of the whole, uh, whole system that we're a part of. Um, extending out to the entire universe, um, and and so we're we're learning from people like um, Susan Samard, who wrote a book called Finding the Mother Tree. That there's all of these interactions that are going on underneath the ground in a forest, um, among all of these living beings in the forest. And so there's a mycorrhizal um, structure created by fungus and bacteria um, underneath the ground that provides a way of communicating among the trees and other uh, living things in the forest that we had no idea about before. And so we're, we're now coming back to the idea that, well, Maybe the indigenous people were right. These, yeah. these are actually sentient beings that are learning, but we we don't recognize it in in our perception and awareness because those things are hidden from us, from our senses. But now that we're using science to extend our senses into other ways of of learning about our environment well, it changes the way we need to operate within that space with this new knowledge. But our existing social, economic, and political systems have not caught up with um, our new understanding of the universe. So Hmm. that's where designers need to come in and go, well, I think we were wrong (laughs) Um, about what we were supposed to be doing and we have to actually retool everything based on um, the, the new sense-making capabilities that we have through these technologies. But it might be leading more towards uh, what Buckminster Fuller called an ephemeralization of our technologies so that we actually get back to 
um, you know, isn't necessary that all of us have uh, a computer in front of us th that um, requires a lot of resources of energy and material. Um, we might need to actually just get back into nature and then become more attuned to what's going on there so that we can better yeah. communicate with all these living beings that are that are part of who we are so the the trees are breathing for us if if they weren't providing oxygen through their their way of being in the world we wouldn't have anything to breathe and so recognizing that we're dependent on them we have to enlarge the circle of of the living beings that we're serving yeah yeah with love for the system. <laughs> right. So love becomes a kind of ethic, you know, yeah. it, just another way of thinking about, you know, we, we think in terms of, of the ethics of, a of, a an individual of a human being within a, a social system. But now we're enlarging that circle to, we actually have to care for all of life, um, the planet itself. And that's a bigger design challenge than we've ever taken on before. But yeah. um, part of that knowledge, I think, actually has to be um, moving away from this idea of productivity to maintain the engine of prosperity. And actually, you know, maybe we just need to um, reduce <laughs> our energy use, um, relax a little bit, get out of our limbic systems and try to think more rationally and mindfully about what we're doing in the world. And we might, by doing that, you know, we, we did that a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic. We, we stopped everything and then began to observe how nature regenerates itself. And it's not like we yeah. have to be the ones to fix everything that's actually the sickness of colonization we think we have all the solutions and we don't are you saying that maybe nature could self-heal if we leave it alone yeah nature yeah. has the technology to <laughs> to have come to this point over 13.7 billion years is what we're estimating to have evolved this self-regenerating yeah. and self-organizing way of of um, creating complexity and diversity that is proliferating, and we're sort of, you know, at the stage where we could probably observe a metamorphosis of what this life is becoming, because maybe the universe in a way has a sort of sentience that it understands if it doesn't continue on this path, it will ultimately end up with the heat death of the universe. But the, the universe itself has a, has a, a way of, well, we've, we've come this far as an integrative whole figuring out how we um, we find an equilibrium with with death you know death 
is this thing that we have been trained to fear. But when we learn through science that, that, that death is actually how we came to be, we needed the death of stars to create the complex um, physical uh, forms, the, the complex atoms necessary to create biological life. If that hadn't happened, then we wouldn't be here. And we can keep on doing that, you know, keep on going back to what if that hadn't happened? Well, we wouldn't have this really fine-tuned self-regulating system that mm. has brought us to this point. How can we learn from all of that? Well, I think that's what we have evolved to do, it seems to be, is human beings are the sense-making capabilities of the universe, it seems, at this point. But we're not the only ones making sense of things. We have a lot of beings that we've shared this universe with, and we ourselves are a holobiont. We are an amalgamation of of cells that contain our DNA, but we're we also have a microbiome that is you could say foreign to us because it doesn't contain our DNA. It's it's a completely different life form, but we actually need that microbiome within ourselves to sustain life and and we become kind of a metaphor for what's happening in the universe. It's it's that level of complexity and diversity that is necessary. And we built systems that are creating monocultures. And, and by creating monocultures, um, destroying the complexity and diversity and thereby destroying the living system. So when we stop to think about you know, the way we're building these systems as entropic engines, um, what would a syntropic engine look like? And I think that's what we do as designers, is we are, are starting to become that centropic engine within the entropic engine of corporations. And ultimately, I think... So that would be the renewal en engine then, the opposite to entropy. Correct, correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so... Um, and I just find it, it's really interesting that we're, we're discovering that, you know, we become this um, almost like a symbiotic virus <laughs> that has yeah. come to inhabit corporations because they realize if they don't integrate what we're doing into what they're doing, they know they're going to die. And so they realize they need an innovation engine or a creative uh, capacity that they don't have inherently in themselves. So they, they're outsourcing that cap, that capacity to us, but we're becoming um, sentient and aware of what we're being trained to do, which is ultimately creating systems that are destroying ourselves. And we're going to um, grow this awareness that maybe we actually have to redesign what it means to be a corporate entity, you know, not a corporation yeah. in terms of what the monarchies wanted to do, which was absolve themselves of liability when they're marauding around the earth, um, enslaving people, killing um, ecosystems, and creating genocides. 
they didn't want to be responsible for that. So they created corporations to create a kind of hands, uh, arm's length relationship to all the harms that they were creating in the world. And we have to fundamentally actually redesign what it means to be a corporation. Mm. Yeah. So to wrap up some um, forward looking then, so in order to start designing a better future, the life-centered society, Mm -hmm. um, what do you see are the key areas that um, need to, to, to change and where we need to succeed in order to um, make this shift. Right. Yeah. So that's where I've come up with this idea of social architecture and Mm -hmm. it's, it's thinking about uh, humanity at scale. So we're thinking about the social arc, you know, so this is kind of a double entendre or, you know, combining two ideas into one. So I've, I came across this, um, web domain socialarc.com and um, I had been exploring social architecture as a concept for how do we reframe what we're doing as designers as we're evolving from creating physical things which is what the Bauhaus kind of oriented us to do is understand our materials and then build the modern world and then we did that but now we're looking at that and realizing, oh, there were a lot of unintended consequences that we hadn't anticipated. And so we actually have to iterate on the meaning of design um, as that that function is evolving towards now we're building social systems or living systems. Um, so we've built these gigantic social systems like Facebook and Google and and Apple Amazon. So these these giants have just, we're aware that we've replicated colonization at the digital level now. We're we're now digitally colonizing the globe, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But how then do we reverse that entropic process by, by now recognizing that the challenge is that what we're doing with technology is extending our capacities outside of ourselves through architecture and infrastructure and and digital technologies into the world at a scale that has become kind of um, an entity to itself. It's taking on a form of artificial intelligence we're giving artificial intelligence basically to colonization or the corporation was given legal personhood and we've given the corporation the um, almost like imbued it with personhood so that it can actually take on personality and agency and it's running ourselves we've created a technology that has enslaved us as human beings and threatens to actually replace us. So if we realize that, then maybe what we have to start off with is how do we become whole human beings who are not living out of our limbic systems and are actually making rational decisions based on what is good for us, what is good for the living beings that we're sharing this planet with and what is good for the planet as a whole. Um, 
And we have to understand then that whatever we put out into the world is going to have a social arc. It's going to have the ability to exponentially grow to a state that may even become a kind of self-aware entity that that we become slaves to. Mm. Um, well, then, you know, uh, there's this idea that we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. So we actually have to think of ourselves as an interface, as um, how do we become mindful of how we live out of fear and desperation, but we can actually become more mindful and loving and compassionate. And we have these capacities, but we we actually have to, in a way, weaponize ourselves against the weapons we've created. But <clears throat> what if we took a more holistic way of thinking of what it means to be human? And so I started to go back to, well, what was the Bauhaus doing? Well, they were trying to understand their materials so that they could build the the physical world of the future. What we're doing now is focusing on the metaphysical design of human experience. So um, these things have been off the table, our social systems, our economic systems, our political systems. We just think of those as givens. But we actually have to realize that, well, that's what got us here to this crisis. We're just replicating what yeah. we've been given. So if those pieces are on the table, then um, we have to have the imagination to think that we can redesign all of those things. And yeah. technology gives us the capacity to do that, which ultimately might mean that it's going to relieve us of this dependency on technology to recognize that, human beings are an amazing interface. And if we get out, out from behind these screens and start talking to each other and conversing and recognizing that, you know, um, I've used this metaphor of a ship. So let's imagine that we're on a ship. Let's say that the ship is like the Titanic and it's heading toward an iceberg. So we've noticed the iceberg too late to change our trajectory. So what do we do? We think that we're relying on the captain and crew of the ship to make the decisions for us, but hubris has blinded their ability to perceive the danger and the momentum and inertia of the ship are leading all the passengers toward a fate that the people are not sufficiently prepared for. Now let's say that there is an ability that the passengers are completely unaware of. All it might take is a change of awareness and consciousness for everyone on board to be able to react to the situation in time to save everyone on the ship. Mm. So just as the ship is about to make contact with the iceberg, the ship changes form, breaking apart into smaller craft, like a murmuration of starlings. All the smaller craft navigate around the iceberg and reassemble as the original ship on the other side. So it's a, it's a ridiculous thought experiment that may have nothing to do with reality, but I think the metaphor is apt for the situation in which we find ourselves. Like humans actually have the ability to make decisions independently of other human beings. However, yeah. we have outsourced our will and authority to corporations and nation states. So we cannot conceive of a world without money, corporations, or nation states. 
even though these are very recent human inventions. So this is a mental trap of our own design. So I think we're capable of learning how to move together like a murmuration of starlings. We learn to communicate through language, images, and music. We're making similar modernist cities of glass, steel, and concrete all over the world that are patterned after a similar concept of urban design that requires roads and skyscrapers and airports and signs to direct our movements. But many of these ideas originated in the pedagogy of the Bauhaus, and they spread around the world as an international style of architecture and a ubiquitous approach to graphic design and communication that has now been translated into digital infrastructure and a global network. But we did this within 100 years of the forming of the Bauhaus in 1919. So imagine what we could do if we could coordinate our perceptions, motivations, and behaviors. That is my question. Like, how do we achieve a collective consciousness and a group flow state? So we've based, you know, the past 500 years of so-called progress on the idea of entropy, like all matters in this process of breaking down and will ultimately end in the heat death of the universe. So the you know, the logic goes that there's not enough to go around. We must compete for scarce resources. This drive for competition puts us into a stress and fear state as we're in this constant fight for survival. And the result is colonization, exploitation, violence, war, and genocide. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we are in the process of reversing billions of years of equilibrium between life and death, syntropy and entropy, well... Like, what if we actually, you know, look to the ideas of someone like Jeremy Lent, who he's written a couple books um, about the process of aligning human consciousness with reality. But we also have this uh, way of interacting with the margins to really um, undermine that idea that we're working for, you know, everybody at the top of the bell curve. But really, if we're serving people at the, at the edges, at the margins, we end up serving everybody in society. Um, and, yeah. and we'll end up, you know, now we're, we're enlarging what it means to be on the margins. It's, it's um, bacteria and trees and all these other life forms that are now part of what needs to become our pedagogy as, as designers. Now, this feels like an impossible thing. Like, how much more can we possibly learn as designers? Because we're already doing more with less. But I think that means that we have to say, as human beings, we are all designers. And we are, you know, like Roman Mars, you know, um, he was on this, um, podcast episode with um, CBC Ideas, uh, where he was talking about how he came up with the idea of 99% invisible. Well, if we're doing our job well, you know, 99% of it will be invisible to our experience of daily life. Um, but our job as designers is to understand <laughs> the the 99% that is invisible to everybody we have to be the sense-making capability of all these people who are not being mindful. If we are all being mindful of what's going on, then 
we become this collective consciousness, a kind of builder's collective, this is what I'm calling humanity, you know, that can start to recognize, well, no one of us can do this, but what happens if 7 billion of us start to look at all the different factors of what it means to be human within this amazing universe, we become a kind of, um, you know, the sense-making capability for the planet to help steward and curate the ongoing flourishing of life on the planet. And that, I think, is is like the new marching orders for for who we become as designers. Yeah. So if I were to summarize that, I would say um, that we need to start designing for what you call the margins. Um, right. And we need to realize that we can influence what we take for granted, such as the political systems, mm-hmm. and that we need to um, become aware um, and realize that we have a free will to influence these things. Exactly. And yeah. and what I'm saying about who we are, like we are a creative, collaborative, self-organizing learning community, and not yeah. just as human beings. We are in community with all the living beings of this planet, with the planet itself. And, and we might not know this, but as of yet, but maybe we are in collaboration with the universe in informing what comes next. And what are we transforming into? Um, we have no idea. But I think that to me is, that's the, that's the process of life that we're in, is complete ambiguity and, and uncertainty about where we're going. But recognizing that we have social influence, we have economic capacity, and we have political agency to actually change our environment. And that's an immense responsibility. Um, and and there's no way that we can shirk from that. Um, mm-hmm. Unless, you know, the planet just takes us out, which it could very well do. <laughs> you know, if we are the cancer, um, then, you know, it might just be in this fever state where it's trying to get rid of the pathogen. And it, uh, I think the earth would succeed <laughs> and and is in the process of succeeding if we don't change our ways. So it's it is a matter of survival, but it's also, I would say, it's a matter of transformation and transcendence. Like how do we... Um, recognize what we can become if we we actually become more uh, rational, centered, mindful, compassionate, loving beings who are are actually taking on this responsibility to just become more aware of of what's going on and and integrating ourselves in that process. Yeah. Now we have a choice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So on that note, um, thank you very much uh, for joining today. Um, it's um, I uh, yeah, it's been some really philosophical, uh, insightful discussions. 
I, I like when you uh, said love as the KPI. It uh, kind of reminded me about Buddhism, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you so much. I'll, um, yeah, it, and this has been an amazing mm -hmm. um, opportunity to have this conversation, and I'm so grateful um, that we were able to meet, and um, I hope we can carry on with this this work that we have to do together. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode. <laughs>